executive producer Isaac Saul. This is Tangle. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Tangle Podcast, the place we get views from across the political spectrum, some independent thinking, and a little bit of my take. I'm your host, Isaac Saul. Today is Tuesday, December 19th, and we are going to be talking about a very important and I think reverberating story from Gaza, from Israel, about the Israeli Defense Forces inadvertently killing three Israeli hostages in Gaza. This story has resonated, obviously, in a huge way domestically in Israel, and it's gotten a lot of attention in the United States today, too. And I think this is a moment where the war could change. I think it could shape this future that we're kind of watching unfold right now in front of us. So I want to talk a little bit about that. We're going to, as always, share some views from across the political spectrum, and in this case, also some views from Israel. Before we jump in, though, I want to give you a quick heads up about a podcast project that we are working on. Some of you might remember last year, you longtime listeners, that we did a really fun project last year where we interviewed a group of Tangle readers. We randomly selected five readers among a bunch of people who submitted themselves as, you know, potential names to be pulled from a hat to be interviewed for the Tangle podcast. And it was sort of this really cool kaleidoscope of readership and people from across the United States. Well, we're doing something a little bit similar, but with the 2024 election in mind. So imagine for a moment that Joe Biden and Donald Trump are running against each other in 2024, as it appears they're likely going to be. Do you know who you'd vote for? If the answer is no, or I'm not sure, I want to hear from you. Our team is hoping to launch a 2024 podcast series where we follow a group of undecided voters from early 2024 up until Election Day to just see how their views on the race change throughout the year. And we thought it would be great to start with our own politically eclectic audience. So if you are a genuine, and that's key here, a genuine undecided voter, please email me. Isaac, I-S-A-A-C, at readtangle.com. And you can use the subject line, undecided voter. And tell me a little bit about yourself, introduce yourself. And I would be very interested in considering an interview with you. We're hoping to pull together some people from across the political spectrum. And I think at the end of this, we'll get a really interesting podcast series out of it. So that is our goal. I'd love to hear from you. Drop me a line if that sounds interesting. And before we jump in our quick hits, one other quick reminder, we have a new video up on our YouTube channel. Yes, we are continuing to churn out these videos with Gen Z economist Kyla Scanlon, who came on to talk about the current state of the Biden economy, what people get wrong about Gen Z, and what stories she is keeping her eye on. If you're not familiar with Kyla, she is one of the most followed people on TikTok and YouTube and Twitter on economic news. So this was a great get for us. She was an awesome guest. It was super interesting to sit down with her for a few minutes. And you can go find that interview on our YouTube channel right now, Tangle News on YouTube. All right, with that out of the way, we're going to jump in with some quick hits. First up, Texas Governor Greg Abbott, the Republican, signed a law that allows state law enforcement to arrest migrants that cross the border illegally from Mexico. 
Number two, the iconic American company U.S. Steel, the Pittsburgh producer, has agreed to be bought by Japan's Nippon Steel. Number three, Pope Francis is allowing the Roman Catholic Church to bless same-sex relationships in certain situations, though he did not alter the church's doctrine around same-sex marriage. Number four, at least 111 people were killed and hundreds more were injured after a magnitude 6.2 earthquake in northwestern China. And number five, Southwest Airlines will pay a record $140 million fine to settle a federal investigation into the massive 2022 holiday service disruption. There are protests tonight in Tel Aviv, hundreds marching after heartbreaking news that Israeli troops accidentally shot and killed three hostages in Gaza. Tonight, tragedy on the battlefield. The Israeli military saying it mistakenly shot and killed three hostages during fierce fighting in northern Gaza. The Israeli hostages had either escaped from or were abandoned by Hamas terrorists. According to Israel, when IDF soldiers found them, wrongly identified them as a threat and opened fire. They were killed on Friday in an active combat area in northern Gaza. The men were dressed in civilian clothes and waving a white cloth walking toward Israeli soldiers when they were shot, according to a preliminary report by the Israeli military. A military spokesman said that the shootings were against the army's rules of engagement and were being investigated at the highest level. But people here are upset. On Saturday, the Israeli Defense Force said it mistakenly killed three Israeli hostages in Gaza during a firefight raising domestic pressure on the government to work toward a ceasefire and more hostage releases, while ramping up the international criticism of Israel's ground invasion. IDF officials said the hostages were mistakenly identified as a threat, despite the fact they came out of a building shirtless holding a white cloth attached to a stick above their head. A soldier saw them and opened fire, killing two hostages instantly and injuring the third, according to an IDF spokesperson. After being injured, the third hostage ran back to the building and yelled help in Hebrew, causing a battalion commander to order his troops to stop firing. Despite the order, another shot killed the third hostage, the spokesperson said. Details of the incident have been described only by members of the Israeli military, leaving independent journalists struggling to verify exactly what happened. The bodies of all three men were transferred to Israel for examination, at which point they were identified as hostages taken by Hamas on October 7th. Lieutenant General Herzi Halevi said shooting someone seeking to surrender and holding a white flag is forbidden in the Israeli army, but this shooting was carried out during combat and under pressure. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu called it an unbearable tragedy. The shooting immediately caused an outburst of anger in Israel and from critics of the Israeli army internationally, who said the killing was emblematic of how indiscriminately Israeli soldiers have been killing Palestinians in Gaza. It's heartbreaking, but not surprising, said Roy Yellen, the director of public outreach with the Israeli human rights group B'Tselem. We have documented over the years countless incidents of people who clearly surrendered and who were still shot. Roughly 129 hostages are believed to still be in Gaza. Shortly after news of the hostages' killings broke, Netanyahu confirmed that new negotiations were underway to recover hostages being held by Hamas. The head of Mossad, Israel's spy agency, was reportedly meeting with Qatari Prime Minister Mohammed Bel Abdurrahman Al Thani to discuss another round of hostage releases and a ceasefire. CIA chief Bill Burns also met with Qatari leadership as part of the negotiations. 
The Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry says close to 20,000 Gazans have been killed since the Israeli bombardment began October 7th, an estimate some Israeli officials have accepted. Israel says about two-thirds of those killed have been civilians, while citing the killing of dozens of Hamas leaders during this latest war. Meanwhile, 126 Israeli soldiers have been killed in the fighting. The Biden administration is now applying pressure on the Palestinian Authority to reactivate members of its forces in Gaza after the conflict has concluded, a move the Israeli government opposes. Today, we're going to break down some arguments about this incident, negotiations for more hostage releases and a prisoner swap, and the current state of the conflict. Throughout our coverage of this conflict, we've highlighted views from American, Israeli, Palestinian, and international writers. Given the domestic focus on Israel and its military in the wake of this event, Today, we're going to focus on a range of opinion pieces from the United States and Israel. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. First up, we'll start with what the right is saying. Many on the right are mourning the incident, but stand firmly behind the IDF's approach to fighting in Gaza. While some note that tragedies like this are part of war, others say Hamas is solely responsible for deaths on both sides of this conflict. In PJ Media, Rabbi Michael Barclay wrote about the tragedies of Israel waging ethical war. It has been a terrible day for Israel, and it is a demonstration not only of the horrors of war, but also of the inherent dangers Israel consciously embraces daily, he wrote. Three hostages were mistakenly killed in Shijaya, a hotbed of terrorists and suicide bombers. Because of the value that Israel places on each human life, the IDF risks the lives of its forces every day in Gaza by clearing houses one at a time. In their attempts to not hurt Gaza's civilians, even those who want Israel destroyed, IDF soldiers take daily risks and put themselves in harm's way. While we mourn the deaths of innocents, we must also give accolades to Israel, a nation so committed to saving every life possible that she risks her own forces clearing one house at a time rather than take the easier road of keeping her own soldiers safe. It is a true testament that Israel protects her citizens with her army, while Hamas protects its army with its civilians. Red State blogger Streif discussed the important context around the hostages' deaths. The IDF had not considered the possibility that hostages would flee captivity and wander around the battlefield. New rules of engagement have been issued to take into account that scenario, Streif wrote. It's easy to Monday morning quarterback a young, frightened, probably sleep-deprived soldier over the actions that led to his tragedy. Rarely does complete information exist in combat. Soldiers have to use their training and experience to fill in the gaps and try to make the right decision. When you put incomplete information into the context of suicide bombers and terrorists operating with neither uniforms nor weapons, it is easy to see how this came to be. Regardless of the outcome of the IDF investigation, the one salient fact to keep in mind is that none of this would have happened had Hamas not attacked peaceful Jewish settlements on October 7th. Every single death in this conflict emanates from that event, and Hamas alone is to blame for all the deaths on both sides. All right, that is it for what the right is saying, which brings us to what the left is saying. The left is dismayed by the killing of the hostages, with some placing the blame on Netanyahu for enabling shoot-first policies in the IDF for years. Others say the ongoing hostage situation requires a new strategy from Israeli and U.S. negotiators. In The Guardian, Dalia Shinlin argued that Netanyahu's shoot-first policies are harming all of us. 
Netanyahu's press conferences are an increasingly grotesque spectacle these days, given his apparent lack of remorse or sense of responsibility. Nevertheless, he got one thing right on Saturday evening. Since the tragedy, he said, he could not stop turning over the tiny hypotheticals that could have saved the hostages' lives. The one-way road to Friday's nightmare was paved by the de facto indulgence of shoot-first policies. The idea that these unacceptable practices would be targeted only at Palestinians, as if the two populations are not joined at the heart of this mess, is a lie. Of course, it was Hamas that lured Israel into the corrupt trap of this filthy war. Blinded by pain, rage, and humiliation, Israel only followed one path. Overwhelming force, Shinlin added. The outcome is incomprehensible death, misery, and destruction in Gaza, Mistakes, like shooting the hostages, that can never be undone. In the Washington Post, Jason Rezaian warned against learning the wrong lessons from the latest Israel-Hamas hostage deal. Nearly every aspect of the ongoing conflict in Gaza has been a tragic disaster, except for the recent negotiations that led to the hostage releases. Freeing more than 100 people is a success by any metric, but even more critically, the effort should stand as a wake-up call to the world about the urgent need to combat the scourge of hostage-taking, a phenomenon that has only become more prevalent in recent years, he wrote. Above all else, the hostage deal stands as a rebuke of the tired notion that one does not negotiate with terrorists, state or non-state alike, to free the unjustly detained. There is, therefore, an urgent need to come up with a comprehensive hostage strategy to be pursued by the world's democracies and other friendly governments to cultivate deterrence options. It's critical that the problem be approached holistically, not as a series of one-off outrages, which is how most countries approach each new case today, Rezaian wrote. Israel's goal of neutralizing Hamas is legitimate, but the cost in innocent Palestinian civilian lives is tragic, unacceptable, and ultimately counterproductive. And it certainly does nothing to combat future hostage-taking. All right, that is it for what the left and the right are saying, which brings us to some what Israeli writers are saying. Again, we are not including any Palestinian voices today or any international voices from places like Europe that have frequently chimed in on this conflict just because of the major focus domestically on Israel given this event. First up, some Israeli writers say the incident is a wake-up call for the government to do whatever it takes to bring the remaining hostages home. Others maintain that defeating Hamas should be the government's priority, even if it means more hostage deaths. In Haaretz, Roby Damelin wrote Free My Son's Palestinian Killer to Free the Israeli Hostages Held by Hamas. I think about David, my beloved son, who was killed by a Palestinian sniper while on reserve duty in the West Bank in 2002. I am sure, if he were still with us, that he would have been with you demonstrating for all these terrible days that have passed since October 7th, Damelin said. I think about that sniper who was in jail for killing him along with nine other soldiers and civilians. I say free him if it will bring back even one of your loved ones. I can only speak for myself, not for those other bereaved families, but I say free him because the sanctity of human life is so much more important than anything else. It's more important than some of the professional fearmongers in this government who would so easily sacrifice the lives of hostages in the name of our quote-unquote security they have done so much to damage since taking office, culminating on October 7th, a catastrophic and unprecedented failure to protect our country, Damlin wrote. Bringing the hostages back now, while we hope all, if not most, are still alive, is the only humane thing to do. In the Jerusalem Post, David M. Weinberg argued destroying Hamas is more important than saving hostages. 
It is time for Israel's wartime leaders to concentrate once again their efforts on one of the most critical goals of this war, the main, most consensual, and most legitimate objective. Distilled to its essence, this is the eradication of the Hamas threat to Israel and the consequent restoration of Israel's deterrent posture versus all enemies in the Middle East. Everything else is secondary, Weinberg said. Every other interest and concern, no matter how poignant, compassionate, or pressing, must remain subordinate to the overarching master goal of erasing Hamas's control of the Gaza Strip. Alas, this means that humanitarian concerns, both for the 100 or so Israeli civilians still held hostage by Hamas and for the millions of Palestinian civilians held hostage by Hamas, must be relegated to the sidelines. It is not easy or nice to say so, but concern for the hostages, and yes, Palestinians in Gaza are brutally kept captive by Hamas in every way, cannot dominate Israeli decision-making. All right, that is it for some takes from the left and the right and from Israel, which brings us to my take. So on the one hand, there is something uncomfortable about how much attention this event has gotten, especially in Israel, given the number of innocent Palestinians in Gaza who are dying every day at the hands of the Israeli army. On the other hand, it's also pretty understandable that this story is reverberating so strongly. The image of an army ostensibly tasked with bringing home hostages, mistakenly killing them, is such a stark reminder of how awful war is that it cannot be ignored. I'm not going to sit here and judge the individual soldiers responsible for this shooting. I've never been in a war, and I can't imagine what it's like for a 19-year-old traversing Gaza in these conditions trying to differentiate enemy combatants from innocent Palestinians from Israeli hostages. As gut-wrenching as they are, mistakes are bound to happen, and it's easy to be a Monday morning quarterback from thousands of miles away after events like this. I've also seen time and again during this war how risky it is to draw conclusions from big events that I don't yet know enough about. I'm not here to do that. At the same time, it's also ridiculous to ignore the implications of such an event, not just for this particular war, but for the conflict more broadly. If a group of Israeli soldiers can mistakenly shoot three shirtless Israeli hostages holding a white flag above their heads, screaming for help in Hebrew, How many other people have they killed who didn't deserve to die? How many Gazan civilians who have no affiliation with Hamas and no intention of joining the fight? Despite so much news coverage about the suffering and mayhem in Gaza, I doubt we hear even a fraction of what is happening on the ground. Approximately 20,000 Gazans have been killed, about two-thirds of whom are civilians, a number Israeli officials do not seem to dispute. The suggestion that this event is somehow demonstrative of the Israeli army's great care for life, as Rabbi Michael Barclay argued under what the right is saying, is so nonsensical it's almost difficult to articulate an argument against it. I cannot refute the implication. Events like this, people being killed who shouldn't be, are even more common than we understand. And at least some Israeli soldiers are so scared, angry, or discombobulated in this incredibly difficult environment that they are shooting first. That is the reality of this war that we have to grapple with right now. So let me preface what I am about to say by just reminding listeners that I am an American Jew who fundamentally believes in and supports the existence of the state of Israel. Killing one enemy soldier for every two Palestinian civilians is not going to stabilize the region or make Israel safer. The destruction of Gaza and the harm to Palestinians is obvious, but it should be clear to everyone that this is harming Israel too. Surging support for Hamas does not make Jews and Israelis safer. 
havoc in Gaza that generations of young Palestinians will forever blame on Israel does not make Jews and Israelis safer. Instability in the Middle East does not make Jews and Israelis safer. A scorned international community that views Israel as dismissive of international law does not make Israel and Jews safer. This is not helping. In the days after Hamas's attack in Israel, I said that this was going to be a war unlike any we'd ever seen. Not just urban warfare, a fraud affair, even in normal circumstances, if war can ever be called that, but urban warfare with hostages, tunnels, and two million civilians, including a million who were 18 or younger, packed into a strip of land about the size of Philadelphia. Where is this headed? What is the plan? Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has vowed to destroy Hamas, but also rejected the idea of the Palestinian Authority, the only remotely possible alternative for leadership in Gaza, taking power in their place. The only option he appears open to is killing and expelling people in Gaza, expanding settlements in the West Bank, and reoccupying Gaza with Israeli forces when this ends. It is a doomed strategy, as unimaginative as it is dangerous. Rather than destroy Hamas, this war has helped their popularity in Gaza soar. Two months later, about half of the hostages taken from Israel have been saved, and they likely could have been brought home by a prisoner exchange without any ground invasion. Three have now been killed by Israeli forces. Gaza is in ruin, with about half of all civilian housing destroyed and roughly 1.8 million people displaced. Over 100 Israeli soldiers have also been killed. Meanwhile, violence in the West Bank on the other side of Israel is surging, as is support for Hamas. The international community is turning against the Israeli government, and the actions of the Israeli military are angering the surrounding Arab world, threatening a larger regional conflict that has already begun to disrupt shipping through the Red Sea, where Iran-backed Houthi rebels are now attacking American and Israeli ships. At what point does Netanyahu look around and realize this is not working? He is a failed leader, corrupt, divisive, incapable of keeping his people safe, and now dragging the country into the kind of war that will hurt it more than it helps. The best argument he has for continuing this offensive is quote-unquote deterrence by force, that Hamas and other Iran-backed proxy groups will look around, see what Israel is doing, and decide they want none of that in the future. And yet all this has actually done is justify to Palestinians Hamas's stance of armed oppositions and reward them with love from the Palestinian people. Israel is providing them with even more justification for future violence in the eyes of the international community and more legitimacy as a political group that can competently negotiate the release of hostages. All the while, the deterrence has been totally non-existent. There have been increased attacks on U.S. and Israeli forces throughout the Middle East, and more of Israel's neighbors are rattling their sabers about a larger war. Again, Netanyahu's stated goal was to destroy Hamas, but the IDF's push into Gaza may have moved Israel farther away from that goal than ever. Israel is not going anywhere. There is not going to be a Palestine from the river to the sea. There is not going to be a massive return of 20 million Palestinians to the state of Israel. As difficult and terrible as that might be to some people, it is the honest truth. Israel exists as a state the same way most countries in the modern world have come to exist through conflict, victory, and war, global recognition, and ancient connection to the land. Any pragmatic people looking for genuine solutions to this conflict need to move forward understanding that any end to it will involve a Jewish state existing in or around places like Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. The so-called one-state solution, a single unified nation of Israelis and Palestinians living side by side, currently feels impossible, 
And some version of a partition and two-state solution continues to look to me like the most realistic path out of this mess. I wish for an independent and sovereign Palestinian state. I pray for people smarter than I am who can get us there. Given that every moment of what is happening now has to hold the tension of Israel's right to exist and defend itself with the need and equal right for the Palestinian people to exist with self-determination without being subjected to indiscriminate killing by their neighbors and next to a neighbor, Israel, that is obeying international law. After October 7th, there was always going to be a forceful response. Hamas's heinous attack forced Israel's hand, and Hamas deserves plenty of blame for the current state of Gaza in more ways than one. I wish the Palestinian people would see that more clearly, and I hope they abandon Hamas as a leadership group the first chance they get. But Israel is beyond responding with force. It's beyond a planned countermeasure, and it's well beyond bringing peace or security. Israel is nearly alone in this war, with its only remaining ally now wavering, killing not just civilians but its own people, and making the region less safe for itself along the way. It has its hand on the steering wheel and an outsized role in what happens next. It is way past time for a new strategy. We'll be right back after this quick break. All right, that is it for my take. Uh, we got a little bit long. Well, my take got a little bit long. So we're skipping the reader question today to give our main story some extra space. But we do have an under-the-radar story for you. Homelessness in the United States has hit its highest level since the Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD, started tracking the figure in 2007. Over 653,000 people experienced homelessness on a single night in January 2023, a 12% increase, about 70,000 more people as compared to 2022. About 6 in 10 of the people experiencing homelessness had sheltered homelessness, meaning they were either in an emergency shelter, transitional housing, or a safe haven program. The remaining 4 in 10 were living in places not meant for human habitation. HUD listed changes in rental housing and the end of pandemic protections and programs as contributing to the spike. Fox Business has the story, and there's a link to it in today's episode description. All right, next up is our numbers section. The approximate number of people taken hostage by Hamas on October 7th is 239. The approximate number of hostages still being held by Hamas in the Gaza Strip, according to the Israeli military, is 129. The number of Palestinians released from Israeli prisons as part of the prisoner swap last month is 240. And the percentage of Israelis who said their government should negotiate with Hamas for the release of its hostages in a November 2023 poll was 59%. That poll was from the Israel Democracy Institute. The percentage of Israelis who said their government should not negotiate with Hamas for the release of its hostages was 32%. And they were saying that they should not negotiate until the current fighting ends. The percentage of Israeli Jews in favor of Israel negotiating with Hamas for the release of its hostages is 54%. The percentage of Israeli Arabs in favor of Israel negotiating with Hamas for release of its hostages was 81%. All right, and last but not least, our Have a Nice Day story. At 92 years old, Lou Bercha is still kicking and punching. The English grandfather practices Kung Fu and Tai Chi daily, and he credits the practice for his good health. At my age, I have friends dying all around me, and Tai Chi has kept me going, said Bercha. 
It's really important to keep moving, which is lucky because I can't stand still. You can still walk up to seven miles a day and says running is no problem. Berger from Leeds, England found Tai Chi in his 50s after suffering from repeat chest infections and a bad back. He'd already played sports most of his life, but he found the slow motions and focus practice of Tai Chi particularly captivating. Plenty of exercise is what keeps you going, and it also gives you a really positive outlook on life, he said. Good News Network has the story, and there's a link to it in today's episode description. All right, everybody, that is it for today's podcast. As always, if you want to support our work, you can go to readtangle.com forward slash membership. Don't forget our prices for our memberships are going up in early 2024. So if you want to snag a membership before then, now is a good time to do that. And of course, we are putting some paywall premium content for subscribers only on the podcast at the top of our list for 2024 goals. So hope you guys stick around. We'll see you tomorrow, same time. Have a good one. Peace. Our podcast is written by me, Isaac Saul, and edited and engineered by John Wall. The script is edited by our managing editor, Ari Weitzman, Will Kaback, Bailey Saul, and Sean Brady. The logo for our podcast was designed by Magdalena Bakova, who is also our social media manager. Music for the podcast was produced by Diet75. And if you're looking for more from Tangle, please go to readtangle.com and check out our website. Our website.